The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning. In any relay race, uh, if you've ever seen a relay race being run, you'll see two uh, runners who at some point in the race, one is holding a baton, right, and they're running up behind the other runner, and then the other runner in front of them begins running full speed as well, and at some point in that exchange, the, the baton is handed from the one behind to the one in front, but there's a period of time in which they're both running full speed, right? Full speed before the one behind slows, and and hopefully after a clean exchange, a clean handoff, the next runner begins making their way around the the track. Well, for the last three years as a church, we've been in this baton handoff of a a pastoral succession, a pastoral transition here, and this isn't news to you unless you were brand new here this morning, Uh, but on May 21st, that is the point in which Pastor Bill will release his hand from the baton. And that's the point in which I'll begin to run by myself, um, not by myself, but, but that's when I'll begin to run um, with the leadership of, of this church. And so this has been a long uh, period of time that we've been in this pastoral transition, and it's on May 21st going to be, Lord willing, a celebration of 28 years of running hard and fast by my father, Bill Jeske. A marathon is 26.2 miles. He's been running hard for 28 years. He's gone uh, above and beyond. And what he wants to do in this next season of ministry is not stop ministering. He simply wants to change his pace. And I think he's uh, earned that, uh, a change of pace. And so what we're going to do on May 21st is we're going to celebrate this this handing over of the the primary leadership responsibility for the church. And then Pastor Bill is going to take a much-needed sabbatical arrest with his wife. They're both both coming off surgeries in the last year. They're going to rest, recover, recuperate, seek the Lord, and come back to the church in a different capacity, a pastoral ministry, where he'll continue to be a loving shepherd to those that know and trust him as their pastor. And so that's what we look forward to. And I'm excited and honored to to have your prayers and your support as as we move into a new season, a new era as a church. As we open up the scriptures to Matthew Excuse me, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Uh, just, just as one more reminder, May 21st. May 21st. Pencil it in. Be here. Be here to celebrate the life and, and legacy of, of Pastor Bill. He's not dying. <laughs> but it does raise this question. If you had just days to live on this earth, if you had just, just five days left on this earth and you knew it, how would you spend it? How would you spend it? Would anything change? Would your priorities change? Would your, would your focus change? Would the people you spend time with change? Consider that question. You have five days. What do you do? How do you live? What are you thinking about? What are you dwelling on? Would you have some more passion and urgency in the way that, that you live? Would you shed apathy? Would you turn off the TV? Would you, you throw your phone in a blender? Like, what would you do? Would you shed fear? How would you live? 
I can remember when I was 18 years old, it was uh, my first week on the college campus. I arrived before the majority of the students to my college for preseason. And so anyone who's been in these, these preseason environments um, going into the fall, it's late summer, it's, it's hot, and the camp, campus was completely empty. Uh, brand new environment for me, a new beginning. Uh, all kinds of hope and excitement. I'm off on my own in the, this grand, big new world, pretending to be an adult for four years. And, and there I am in those early days with life full of hope and possibilities. And I'm settling into my training uh, for soccer. I'm enjoying the dorm life. I'm building new friendships, doing all these things. When one day we're all taken in groups uh, to the clinic on campus. And in the clinic on campus, they, they do your routine physical tests. They make sure that you're healthy and able to compete, and they take measurements and these kinds of things. But one of the tests they do is this skin test for this now mostly eradicated uh, lung disease called tuberculosis, or TB, at least eradicated in, in our part of the world. And as expected, the whole team goes through this, this skin test, all with negative results, except for one person on the team, me, Right? And maybe we've all learned this lesson in the last few years, but did you know that a positive test is not a good thing? That's what I had, was a, a positive test. Now, now, where I got, I don't know. I, I spent some time in, in Brazil in high school, and, and we had all, all kinds of people coming into our, our house through years and years of ministry. Uh, and so I don't know where I got it, but what I do remember is that the doctor there in the clinic quickly wrote me a referral for a chest x-ray uh, to determine if the tuberculosis had become active. <coughs> And told, told me that in all likelihood, a regimen of antibiotics would begin immediately. And so I walk out of that, that clinic, and I've got my, my referral slip in my hand, and I'm 18 years old. Um, for just a few days, thinking and pretending I'm an adult, where suddenly I'm, I feel like a kid again, and I'm completely alone. And it's hot, and, and the campus is empty, and it's quiet, and, and I've just been given this diagnosis of this disease that I've only heard about in movies, and it always seems to be very uh, deadly from what I've heard. And so I can just remember, just for moments, feeling completely overwhelmed in that moment. Like, wondering who I should talk to. I, I have no money. I have no car. I have no ability to get to this place for the screening. I, I'm feeling overwhelmed and for a moment, painfully aware of my mortality. And once you get through kind of the, the fear part of that, you start to think about, in my brief walk across the campus, what matters most in life. Like, if I only have days, months, weeks, whatever it is to live, what am I going to focus on? Who do I need to talk to? What matters most? My faith, my family, the, the legacy that I intend to leave behind as an 18-year-old. Now, now, that sense of fear, that sense of overwhelm, it didn't last long because a teammate rushed me over to the imaging center uh, near campus where they confirmed that the TB was latent. That means it's inactive. And so through nine months of taking horse pills, basically, um, I should not ever have active tuberculosis. I'd be good to go. No need for fear. But I have a sense that, that for any of us, when we are faced with that, that, that encounter with our own mortality, even briefly, that when that shock is worn off, that the priorities of our life suddenly come into sharp focus. Some of you have had that experience. Where all of a sudden, everything else moves to the side, and you know what is most important. We've been talking about priorities as a church, for our church, for weeks and weeks now. That we be a praying church, a praising church, and a boldly proclaiming church before our individual lives. I wonder what would be the most important things for us. Unlike perhaps anyone in history, Jesus, Jesus Christ, he knows when his end is coming. He knows. 
He can count it down. He, he sees his length of life coming to a conclusion as his three-year ministry marches unswervingly towards Jerusalem, towards a cross. And here in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, I'm going to just go back a little bit in, in the gospel to tell you what Jesus says. They're on the road walking to Jerusalem. They've had all kinds of warnings that danger awaits them in Jerusalem. And it says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So he's told them a few times that, that if he goes to Jerusalem, he goes there to be condemned and to die. And, and it says he's walking in the front. His face is fixed. He is full of courage. And it says they were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he be began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, he says, he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after these things, after three days, he will rise. Now, don't forget that last part. Just two weeks ago, we celebrated the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday on Easter. The last thing I want us to do today as we consider uh, the brevity of our lives and how we might live is to, to just think um, with some kind of morbid motivation. No, Jesus isn't staying in a tomb. Jesus borrows a tomb. He's coming out. He, he is bringing eternal life through his death to those that would believe in him. But much suffering awaits him. And so I want you to recall with me the passage that we probably should have gone over right before Easter, but the timing didn't work out. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus is, is coming towards Jerusalem, and the city is swelling with two, three hundred thousand visitors who come to the city to celebrate this, this sacred Jewish tradition of Passover. And in this, this last week of Jesus's life, we're going to see, as he enters into the city, what is on his mind, what he's prioritizing, what he cares about, the people he spends time with, the focus of his messages, and we'll see that he, is, he doesn't mince his words or his actions in these final days. And so he's going towards the city to celebrate Passover with his friends. They enter into the city. You remember Jesus riding on a, a donkey as crowds cheer for him with leafy branches waving, and, th and they shout out, Hosanna, save now! They see him as their coming, conquering king, making way for him. And the crowds are smiling, and they're shouting, and they're crying, tears of joy. But as Jesus rides westbound into the city, as he comes by way of Bethany through Bethpage down into Jerusalem, on his left he will pass the garden in which he is going to be betrayed by a dear friend. And to his right, just, just 30 minutes of a walk to the north, he will catch a glimpse of the very hill on which he will breathe his last breath. These same crowds that are, are shouting, save now, in one week's time, will shout out, crucify him. And he will suffer and he will die. And far weightier than that, on that cross, Jesus will bear the wrath of God and the sin of man upon himself. Again, if you had five days on this earth, how would you spend it? As Jesus enters Jerusalem for that fateful week, we get to see what was on his heart and mind, what's important to him. And you get the sense from the gospel writers. Here we are in Mark chapter 11. We have a third of the gospel to go. And in a three-year ministry, one-third of the whole gospel is devoted to that final week of his life. The same is true in all, all the gospels. There is so much attention on that final week. And you get the sense that the gospel writers, the, the close followers of Jesus, are really paying attention. They're leaning in. They're taking better notes than ever. They're studying and holding in their minds everything 
that Jesus is doing because they know as he goes to the temple to teach day after day during that final week, they can sense the significance of these days and they're paying attention like never before. And so here's the rhythm of the week. I want you to hold this in your mind over the next couple months. This is how, how each of these studies is going to be as we conclude, excuse me, the next couple of weeks, hopefully, as we conclude the gospel of Mark. Here it is. He says, it says in verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he's come into the city. It's swelling with visitors. He's made this triumphal entry onto, uh, on a donkey into the city. He goes up to the top of the city to the temple, and it says that he just checks it out. The sun's beginning to set. The day's drawing to a c- conclusion. And he looks around at everything. And as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So what is going to happen all week is that Jesus will walk into town, He'll spend his days teaching and preaching in the temple, and then he and his disciples will walk back out to Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem. So picture the city's just full of people, and all those who are not VIPs stay out in their Airbnbs over in Bethany. And that's what Jesus is doing, although he has friends there. And so he is going and staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and these are his, his good friends. And so every day of that week, he'll get up early in the morning, and he will walk two miles some 30, 40 minutes into the city and he will teach his disciples and talk to them on the way. He'll go to the temple and he'll, he'll argue and he'll dispute and he'll uh, talk to the religious people there on the temple mount and then he'll return back to Bethany in this final stressful uh, week of his life. No doubt he, he is prioritizing two things. Number one, he is still going to the lost sheep of Israel. He is still going and bringing them this message of salvation, even though they are sternly rejecting him and turning away from him. And number two, he is spending intimate time with his closest friends and disciples. He is, is cherishing those gatherings around the table with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the twelve each evening as the countdown toward his crucifixion continues. And so this is their rhythm. This is what they're doing. Uh, And each time, Jesus will teach them something else as they go into the city. So Mark uh, 11, verse 12 says this. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, so he's coming in on Monday morning with his disciples, walking in on a cool spring day just like this. Beautiful day walking in. And it says he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. I wonder if we have a, a picture of, of fig trees that we can put up here. Um, but it says that he looks off in the distance. He's hungry. He maybe needs a mid-morning snack or, or some more breakfast, and he sees this fig tree just like that, full of leaves, growing, vibrant, all, all full of life. And it says that when he came to it, he found on it nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So Jesus looks upon this plant in the wilderness. This thing that has all the appearance of life and health, it has all the external appearance of goodness. And yet, upon closer inspection, what he finds is a fruitless tree, which, by the way, is a useless fruit tree. It's a pointless fruit tree. It is neither feeding nor reproducing in any way. And Jesus comes up to this plant, and this is a strange encounter. He looks upon it, and he is frustrated by it. He's, he's annoyed at what he sees. And then he stops, and he begins to talk to the tree. This is very, very unusual. Mark says that this would not have been the, the season for figs. It's, it's, the figs would be coming maybe a month or two away, and yet Jesus, for some reason, is irritated when he sees this particular plant. And then he's, he exchanges, not exchanges, but gives some harsh 
words to the plant and says that it will never bear fruit. He said to it in verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then he turns and he keeps walking towards Jerusalem, the disciples walking behind him, each of them looking curiously at this tree that Jesus just spoke to sternly and wondering what that was all about. So in the moment, this probably wasn't that noteworthy. Like it was a strange interaction. They might have wondered, what is this all about? But Jesus, after this journey, is going to go up to the temple. And we'll talk about this more next week. But what he's going to find in the temple is a bunch of people buying and selling, doing all kinds of things other than worship, turning his house of prayer into a house of commerce. They are going to go to a place where they're going to see all kinds of external religion, all kinds of people who are well put together and, and pious publicly, but he's going to find very little fruit. He's going to find people who are inauthentic in their religion and their faith. And here as he walks by, he is going to go into the temple context and, and he's going to make quite a scene flipping tables and irritating some people. And he's going to be sinless and correct as he does so. We'll talk about that more next week. But after a long day in Jerusalem, Jesus is returning with his friends back to Bethany. He, he's eats some supper, he rests, and then in the morning again on Tuesday, he returns to Jerusalem. So he's going again on that path back to the temple where he had just been flipping tables. And watch what happens on the way, verse 20. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is a tree. And it was there yesterday, and they all saw it. They saw the leaves, the green, and it is now gone, withered away to nothing. This would be quite a, a strange thing. Peter has seen it all. He's, he's uh, seen Jesus calm storms. He's seen Jesus cast out demons. He's seen Jesus create bread and wine out of nothing, and yet he's baffled by this dead plant. Some of you... Um, are big lawn care people, and you wish you could have this kind of power over the weeds in your yard, don't you? <laughs> Jesus took out a tree with a word. And, and this is, as far as I count it, this is the only destructive miracle of, of Jesus in the New Testament. And admittedly, it's strange, right? This is a strange encounter. This seems so unlike him. Uh, for, for the gardeners and the tree huggers here this morning, welcome, we love you. Um, but this is probably a difficult passage for you. For all of us, uh, this seems unnecessary, doesn't it? But as Peter's exclaiming his, his bafflement that this, this plant that Jesus spoke to has suddenly withered away to nothing within a day, Jesus reveals that, that even in this plant removal, he's intentionally doing this to teach, to teach them a lesson that is vital to their health, to their life, to their fruitfulness for the sake of the kingdom of God. There are lessons to be learned here, both for the individuals following him. They're the ones that get to see this. And he's also giving them a picture of what is going on in his beloved city, Jerusalem. Jesus is no stranger to Jerusalem. This is a city he's come to his entire life. This is the, the, the temple and the temple mount and this city are the center of all culture and faith for the Jewish people. This is everything to them. And Jesus' entire life for these feast weeks and occasions, he would be coming down to Jerusalem, to the city, to worship and, and to pray with his his kinsman in the flesh, and he would be spending his evenings in Bethany with friends. This would be a, a regular part of his life. But as Jesus reflects on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem with branches full of leaves waving 
toward him, crowds cheering, and then seeing what is really under the surface of all this externalism, all this pretending, all this acting as if they, they have it all together, this, this man-made religion, excitement, pageantry. He finds that these people are utterly unfruitful, unfaithful, unforgiving. And in the Old Testament, this fig tree is often used as a metaphor for Israel and its health and its standing before God. And here in this visual parable, that, that's what this is. This zapping of the tree is a parable being acted out in real life. They get to see something. He tells them stories all the time. And here they get to see it in reality and see the drastic effect of fruitlessness. They see it. And, and here he looks at Jerusalem and he looks ahead to what awaits these people who are so unaware that the temple itself will be destroyed. That the city within decades will be ransacked. That this great message of salvation, this gospel of the kingdom, which has its roots and, and trunk in God's covenant love with the Jewish people will be received by very few and rejected by many hardened hearts. Romans 11 tells us that, that God will begin then to graft into this tree Gentile believers, that's, that's you and that's me, those who would, by the grace of God, believe in him and bear fruit. Bear fruit. But the warning to us from this parable, I think, is, is pretty clear. It's, it's, it's Jesus is returning. In Mark chapter 13, he's going to talk about the fig tree again. And he's going to say, when it shows its leaves, you know summer's coming. And then he's going to give some apocalyptic teaching that we'll get to in the next couple of weeks. But Jesus is returning. And just as Jesus is looking at this tree in a season in which fruit would not be expected, so too we don't know the day or the hour at which Christ will return. But we know that he will. And he expects his disciples to be found ready, to be prepared to be living lives that bear fruit in keeping with repentance, found fruitful. And so I'm going to look at three things as we move towards the end of this message. Three things that Jesus is looking for in disciples. That's in us. That's what he's looking for in Jerusalem as he goes into the, into the city to these people that so often he would have gathered to himself if they had just heard his message. Jesus, number one, is looking for fruit. Spiritual fruit. When we talk about, about fruit in Scripture, there's a lot of things we could point to is what the fruit is. It's certainly the fruit of the Spirit. He's looking for us to have lives that bear love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. He is looking for fruit that endures. Now, I don't think the disciples would have gotten all this stuff about Jerusalem and the people of Israel and all this stuff from a, a zapped plant like that might not have all come to mind. However, what, what the principle of scriptural interpretation is, is that we're looking at today is, is that what is unclear is to be interpreted by that which is clear. So what is clear is that in just a few days, Jesus is going to sit down with his disciples in an upper room. And in John chapter 15, he's going to tell them that just like a plant, apart from abiding in him, apart from being connected to him in intimate fellowship and relationship, apart from depending on him by his spirit, even after his ascension, that apart from him, they can do what? Nothing. Nothing. He's going to continue to teach them lessons about this, about what he expects, the health and fruitfulness of his followers, that they must remain connected to him, abide in him, depend on him, in intimate fellowship with their loving Savior, by his spirit. And so the, the lesson of this fig tree is not so much about the miracle, though it is quite a miracle. It, it's quite something that happened, but rather it's, it's a parable. This is a living parable 
of, of what Jesus is showing, what characterizes a healthy follower, a healthy spirituality. Now, no doubt his disciples are wondering at this as they gather around. I, I can just picture it. Peter points out this tree that's evaporated down to its roots, and they all gather around it, and they're all looking at it. And, and on some level, it's got to disturb them, right? It's got to be like a warning going off in their hearts. What was it about this that we're supposed to understand about our own spirituality? Recently, my car, it it developed a small coolant leak, which I first discovered when this red triangle appeared on my dashboard, and it said essentially like, pull over immediately, low coolant. And so I I go and I purchase the correct coolant for my car. I I top it off for the the right make and model, open up the reservoir, refill it to the right level, and, and close it. And this worked for a few days. Right? And then suddenly that warning returns. So stop the vehicle, top off the coolant, close the reservoir. A couple days, it happens again. Right? And, and so now over the subsequent weeks, this, this incident is happening again and again. And yet in my foolishness, rather than taking the warning that there actually might be something wrong, I just keep treating the symptom because all I want is for the conviction of that little red triangle to go away. Right? Still haven't fixed it, by the way. <laughs> I'm hoping it's inexpensive to fix, but the the truth is me just topping off the coolant is is not facing the real issue at all. I'm simply dealing with the symptoms. I'm dealing with the external. I'm I'm wanting to feel good and for my car to look good, like it's got it together. I'm hoping uh, to to take away the sting of the warning, but not willing to face the root of the issue. And this fig tree, this is a lesson to all of us. As the disciples walk by this shriveled tree, this is like the warning lights on the dashboard flashing brightly, lighting up all over, urging us to face our true spiritual condition today. How are you doing? How are you doing? Which one of the disciples would wonder, am I that fig tree? Am I fruitless? Am I all show? As Jesus approaches the tree, what he saw was a tree that had all the appearance of life and growth. But as he got closer and found that it was fruitless, he found that it was not what he had created it to be. I wonder this morning how many of us are living life in order to display the appearance of health and godliness and religion and devotion to God and his kingdom. Yet underneath the fig leaves, underneath the coverings that we put up, when the public piety and all the religious externalism is removed, if our lives are bearing fruit. I can tell you emphatically, there have been seasons in my life in which from an outward perspective, I've had it all together, or so I thought. But internally, my life was bearing very little fruit in terms of of, of replicating, duplicating believers, leading people to follow Jesus, living with an internal health that results in an overflow of the fruit of God's spirit in my life. How are you doing this morning? Are our lives bearing fruit? Or are we just under the cover of fig leaves? If we go back to the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis, it's no coincidence that in the midst of their rebellion against God and shame at what they've done, Adam and Eve, when confronted with their nakedness, what do they cover themselves with? Fig leaves. Fig leaves. If we're convicted by this this morning, as we we take some introspection, as we look into our own hearts, if we're convicted by the possibility that we might be fruitless and nothing more than an external show of leaves, 
If you know that what you portray on the outside is not a, a correct reflection of the reality of your spiritual condition, this morning is not a condemnation. It is an invitation to throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of God. To look at your spiritual condition and to repent and say, God, this is how I'm doing. Help me. God, I turn these things over to you. I, I, forgive me. God, I know I'm walking in rebellion against you in this, this area of my life. And I repent. We have unlimited grace and mercy toward us through the cross. But we have to turn. We have to do something. We have to respond to the conviction that we're feeling and turn toward Mark. I have friends in my life who will ask me regularly questions like, Mark, are you keeping it real? Or Mark, are you living legit? And what they mean by that, I know exactly what they mean by that. They mean, how are you really doing? How are you living before God? Are you being honest before God and before others? God would have us be fruitful. That is, he would have us live lives of intimate fellowship with him that, that overflow into something productive for the sake of his kingdom, into others hearing about him, into leading others toward him. The fruitful disciple will produce other disciples. And, and this comes not through having our externals together. It comes rather through a repentant heart, through good soil, ready to receive seeds. It comes through abiding in Christ. And as we abide in Christ, we begin to reflect a genuine righteousness. And a genuine righteousness is marked by prayer. It is marked by praise. It is marked by proclamation of the good news. Jesus is looking for fruit. Secondly, Jesus is looking for faith. It says, and Jesus answered them. This is not the answer we might have expected as they're walking by this, this dead tree. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Have faith in who? In God. Not in ourselves, not in our strength, in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, Jesus is, is speaking metaphorically here. He's using a, a word picture. He's not actually encouraging us, I don't think, to go and yell at mountains, although maybe you could try that. But what he's calling them to is an audacious, bold prayer, an audacious belief in, in the power of God and the goodness of God that he's able. Do we pray as if he is able to answer? Do we pray any prayers that actually require faith that, that we can't figure out on our own apart from God, I think too often this, this verse is misconstrued as, as some kind of recipe for fulfilling your own dreams for your life, like manifesting your new reality that you're looking for um, by wishful thinking, by convincing yourself that if you believe you have something enough, God will give it to you. But that's not what this is about. Jesus is giving this teaching in the context of fruitfulness. He's looking for kingdom-minded faith. He's looking for prayers that make a difference for the sake of the kingdom that he is building. And these prayers of faith are prayers of full confidence that he is able and that he is good and that we can trust him with our prayers, that he will respond to us according to his loving, sovereign will. Do we pray any prayers that require faith? One type of prayer that, that might require faith is, is to pray that God would change you, change in ourselves. I think so often changing ourselves is too scary to ask for because we're worried about what it might cost. So we don't pray, God, make me patient, or, or else we fear we'll be stuck in line at the DMV for two days or something. 
We, we don't pray, God, make me humble because we're afraid that he's going to smack us down somehow. No. No. Whatever makes us more Christ-like, we ought to be praying and asking God to make a reality in our lives. Whatever the cost. Do you pray any audacious prayers for change in yourself? Lord, change me. I repent. I turn. I, I give you control of this area of my life. Have your way. Do you trust him? It means praying for others, that they would change. Sometimes we think that, that praying that other people in our lives, those that we love, would change is too controlling. It's too selfish. And actually, it's, it's exactly the opposite. Everything else we do to try to change them is controlling. When we release those that we love to God in prayer, and we say, God, have your way, change this in them. Lord, my daughter is, is rebelling against you. Rescue her, Lord. People I love hate you, and they hate me because of you. Soften them. Draw them to yourself. Change in others. It, it requires great faith to pray with trust and hope that God can actually do these things that we ask him to do. But what kind of faith does it actually require? The smallest of faith in the greatest of beings the smallest of faith in God who is able. Change in others. Change, lastly, in our world. As the news, the nation, your neighborhood overwhelms you with their darkness. Is God able to bring light and change? Like, is there anything in your life that you just feel like it's so out of control? This is not the country I was born in. Something's changed. It's, it's drastically different and it's darker. Some of us feel that way every day. Do you believe in the power of God to change our world? Ask him. Ask him. That is a mountain to be moved. Would you pray? These are things that, that so often we worry about, and yet we, we miss that that worry, that anxiety is an invitation to bring our needs to the feet of our king. Ask him. Are you praying for anything in your life that requires faith, that actually requires power beyond yourself? That is what Jesus is looking for in those that trust him. He is looking for fruit. He is looking for faith. Lastly, Jesus is looking for forgiveness. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, if you have anything against anyone, forgive. So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This comment from Jesus might surprise us. How does he pull this lesson from the fig tree? But I think it's so powerful. Jesus knows that one of the primary indicators of our health and fruitfulness in our relationship with God is our grasp of how much he's forgiven us. And that will be reflected directly in, in your capacity to forgive those who have wronged you. The truth is, when you know the depth of your own brokenness, when you know your need of a Savior, of his mercy, when you know your desperation, that you were scandalously forgiven, that he shed his blood for you, that he took nails through his hands and feet for you, when you grasp that, you can't possibly withhold forgiveness from others. The evidence that you grasp God's forgiveness deeply will, will be that you cannot withhold forgiveness from others. So how's your heart this morning? Does anyone come to mind when we talk about forgiveness? Are you harboring bitterness, resentment, anger, tension, hatred toward others in your life? Is there anyone that you need to forgive? If so, do it today. Do it today. You say, Mark, I can't do it. <laughs> Just do it. Say those words to, to the Lord right now. Say, say Lord, help me I forgive, fill in the blank. 
Say their name to the Lord. Say, I forgive. Lord, help me. I forgive. And then Jesus actually encourages us to bless our enemies, to pray for our enemies. Those that you are so struggling to forgive, Lord, pray, Lord, bless them. Bless them. Turn them toward you. I forgive them just as you have forgiven me. When we think about the mountains in our lives that need to be moved, I would suspect that for many of you, what feels impossible is to repair and redeem some of the broken relationships in your life. Whether it's with, a, with an ex-spouse or a former friend or a, a mentor who betrayed you, whatever it is with your father, your, your mother, whatever that broken relationship is, I would guess for some of you, that is the mountain. You say, that I cannot overcome. That I cannot forgive. But I wonder this morning if your spiritual growth and your health is being constantly stifled because you have not been able to extend the same forgiveness you've received to someone else in your life. I know that for some of you, you have experienced unimaginable pain. And so this idea of forgiveness, it just doesn't make sense. But as we come to a conclusion, I simply want to point out what Jesus arrived in Jerusalem to do. As he rode down that road, knowing that at the end of the week he would suffer on a cross, he would be beaten, mocked, betrayed, scorned, and murdered, to forgive us, to forgive you, to forgive me. As he softens our hearts to grasp that, what he came into that city to do that week, as he softens our hearts to how much he loved us when we were dead in our sins, when we grasp that, we will be unable to withhold forgiveness from others. Christ is returning, and in fact, he is here now this morning by his Spirit, and he is looking. He's looking for disciples that are fruitful, that are faithful, and that are forgiving. As the band comes up, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, if there's anything this morning, any, any warnings going off in our hearts, Lord, any evidences of of just external religion and unfruitfulness. Lord, I pray that we would, as a church, repent, that we would turn to you and, and lay before you the reality of our condition. Lord, I thank you that your spirit can work in us as we submit to you. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to be a church that is full of people that, that are not just show, but that bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, people that bear the fruit of the spirit and that, that create disciples, that make disciples, that love you. Oh, Lord, inspire our faith. Increase our faith. And Lord, bring to mind those in our own lives that we feel powerless to forgive, Lord, and fill us with just an overwhelming sense of how much you've loved and forgiven us. And Lord, let us forgive just as you've forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.